Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all your favorite pop stars, then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. I'm your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth. Welcome back to another year of this podcast. I hope you all had a lovely New Year's, a lovely Christmas, a lovely break, a lovely breather. I'm really happy to be back on the podcast grind once again. I'm trying out a new tagline. I'm cutting out the uh, minute-long intro here. I kind of realized at a certain point that I know I kept referring to Pop Pantheon as fantasy football for pop. I was having a conversation with a friend and I like realized I don't really know what fantasy football is. So I'm not sure if that was ever accurate. Perhaps the intro to every episode of last year featured that inaccuracy, but whatever. It's my podcast. I think I got the point across, but we are moving on to a uh, show with a tagline. So that's change number one for 2022. Change number two is, as I always say, please rate, review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Spotify now has podcast ratings and I really could use your help getting the podcast rated. I don't think they have reviews, but just Hit the five stars. It's easy. It takes five seconds. Really helps the podcast. Thank you to everyone that's been doing that. And yeah, Spotify listeners, hit five stars on that. Now, official business before we get into this week's episode. We left on a cliffhanger last year about whether our last featured subject, Rihanna, was a tier one icon or a tier two megastar. Now, this led to some very fierce debate, both in my DMs, in my text messages, from my parents, from fans of the show, from friends. And then, of course, we had a really extensive discussion in the Discord chat about it after the episode aired. And there's quite a divide. I can't say we came to a consensus overall, but in the Discord, we kind of decided that solely because of the fact that she hasn't released music in the last five years and really has only released this one album in the last 10 and that her run seems prolific because the first, you know, five, six years was so gorgeous, amazing, life-changing, one of the best singles runs of all time, that the tier one thing seemed plausible, but that ultimately she's kind of one small not short of opening up that sort of tier one legend status we just felt like we're missing that sort of last Beyonce self-titled, Ray of Light, you know, Diana Ross disco era. There's just like a phase of her career in music particularly that she just hasn't quite unlocked by her own choice not having released music over all of this time. So for now, the judgment is rendered and Rihanna is at the very, very tippy top of tier two. I think if she releases another album that's either hugely culturally relevant or a big hit or some combination of both and especially one that sort of presents us with a new side of her that still feels vital I think she makes the leap but as of now she's right at the top of tier two I also want to issue a quick correction here in the episode part one Julianne mentioned that Rihanna was the first pop star potentially who had her own sneaker deal that is Still half true. Someone pointed out off the hook on Instagram pointed out to me that Run DMC was probably the first quote unquote pop act, although at the time I guess they were perceived as more of a hip hop act to have a sneaker line. So I just want to make sure that we're uh, making corrections and being as accurate as possible when possible. 
Last thing before we get into the first episode of 2022 is I am currently still on the hunt for a kind of like producer slash assistant slash uh, it's a part-time thing. Uh, someone to help me with various aspects of putting this podcast together. So if that's you or someone you know is passionate about podcasts, I would definitely give priority to people that have a passion for this podcast and kind of get it and want to get in the weeds with me about a lot of different aspects of making the show. Hit me up. Send me an email at poppantheonpod at gmail.com and let's talk about it. I'm open to a lot of different backgrounds. You don't have to be like experienced necessarily, but just want to put that out there because I would love this to be someone who's an actual genuine fan of the show. So just want to make sure that that's out there. As usual, please shoot any questions you have for me about pop, about the Pantheon, about this week's episode, about past episodes to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Join the Discord chat tonight, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, January 6th. The link for that will be in the show notes. And uh, check out the Spotify playlist for this episode, which will also be in the show notes. So moving on to this week's episode, this was a really fun one to record. I am such a huge fan of my guest this week. I've been a big fan. I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast are fans of Popcast, the New York Times podcast. So I got to talk to one of the Popcast icons about a celebrity and pop star that I find to be really intriguing and whose pop stardom is a little bit opaque to me. So this conversation was so much fun to record and to get to dissect with someone as smart as Joe. So without further ado, here is pop pantheon, Selena Gomez. I was walking down the street the other day. I'll be straight with you. I find Selena Gomez to be an absolutely mystifying pop star. Not because her trajectory doesn't seem preordained, rising to music superstardom from the Disney machine as so many have before and after her, and not because she doesn't have a certain je ne sais quoi star quality, a quiet allure that draws you into her persona, because she certainly does have that. More so, she's mystifying because throughout the decade plus of her music career, she appears to be an arena touring, chart topping, A-list pop star who doesn't seem to fit in the pop star mold at all. She's not a great singer, dancer, performer, or songwriter, and frankly, in an industry defined by the triest of tryhards, she doesn't seem to care that much about being a pop star at all. And yet at the same time, Selena Gomez has made some of the most intriguing, aesthetically coherent, left-of-center pop music of any Disney star of hers or any other generation. Born in Texas to a Mexican father and American mother, Selena Gomez was named after the iconic Tejano singer Selena. She first rose to fame through the Disney machine, moving from guest appearances on Barney and Friends as a small child to eventually landing a starring role in her own Disney Channel show, Wizards of Waverly Place. There, Selena played a spunky, precocious wizard, and her natural comedy chops helped the show win three Emmy Awards and turn Selena into a bona fide child star. The Wizards finale became the highest rated show in Disney Channel history. In tandem with the other major Disney stars of her generation, Demi Lovato, Miley Cyrus, and the Jonas Brothers, Selena quickly pivoted into pop stardom, signing to Disney's in-house record label, Hollywood Records, and forming a, uh, quote-unquote, band 
called Selena Gomez and the Scene, who released their first record in 2009 called Kiss and Tell. The album featured Gomez singing fairly anonymous, kid-oriented pseudo-pop punk songs, was a decent hit with her core Disney fan base, and featured a top 30 song in the U.S. naturally, but failed to make much of an impact with general audiences. Following Kiss and Tell, Selena became increasingly notable as a celebrity when she began a high-profile relationship with pop superstar Justin Bieber, an on-again, off-again roller coaster that would come to define both her public narrative for the next decade and later inform, either explicitly or implicitly, some of her best music. Selena Gomez on the scene followed Kiss and Tell with two more records, 2010's A Year Without Rain and 2011's When the Sun Goes Down, that slowly transitioned from the pop-punk aesthetic that had defined their first album and towards a more electronic, dance-oriented one. While the second record repeated the modest success of the first, the third helped Selena land her first hit outside of her core Disney fanbase when the electro-disco single Love You Like a Love Song became a decent-sized radio hit hitting number 22 on the Hot 100 and selling over 2 million copies digitally. In early 2013, Selena co-starred in the surrealist indie filmmaker Harmony Korine's abrasive crime thriller, Spring Breakers, a controversial but generally well-received movie that gave the world their first glimpse of a post-Disney Selena. Her performance was often singled out and praised by critics. Months later, Selena released her official debut album as a solo artist, Stars Dance. Still under the Disney umbrella, the album was marketed as her coming out party, the arrival of Selena as an adult pop star. Stars Dance dabbled heavily in the four-on-the-floor EDM and dance music that was just beginning to wane at that point. And while she was paired with some of the premier producers and songwriters of the era, like Stargate, Esther Dean, The Cataracts, and Bibi Rexa, the record often came off as a weird fit, attempting to shove Selena into the mold of then-popular superstars like Rihanna and Britney Spears, which didn't necessarily suit her thin, quiet voice and chill, introspective personality. The record was not particularly well-received by critics, but did feature her first top 10 hit, the almost uncomfortably Rihanna-esque Come and Get It. But Selena's career hit a serious snag when she was forced to cancel her Stars Dance tour after being diagnosed with the autoimmune disease lupus. This, paired with a painful and public breakup with Bieber, led Selena to largely step back from pop stardom for a couple of years. When she finally picked up the mic again, first with the significantly more personal greatest hits one-off, The Heart Wants What It Wants in late 2014, but more importantly with the rollout for her second solo album, Revival. 
Selena re-emerged as a pretty radically different artist from the manufactured Disney girl we'd known to that point. Having finally left Hollywood Records to sign with Interscope and wrestling the reins of her musical choices away from the powers that be, Revival's lead single, the subtle, sultry, quirky, Lana Del Rey-indebted Good For You, sounded like an artist who, after more than half a decade, had finally found a musical aesthetic that worked for her and had convincingly made the leap from child star to certifiable hitmaker. Cause I just wanna look Good For You peaked at number five on the Hot 100 and went on to become the first of three top tens from Revival, followed by the Charlie XCX-penned Same Old Love and the Max Martin-produced Hands to Myself. Perhaps more importantly, the album was largely embraced by critics, who praised Selena's, along with the help of songwriting duo Justin Tranter and Julia Michaels, idiosyncratic lyrical approach, breathy, almost spoken word vocal performances, sparse production choices, and uber personal themes. It was certified platinum and was featured on numerous critics' top 10 lists. However, Selena's pop career was once again sidelined when she was forced to cancel the revival tour mid-run due to complications from lupus, leading to another extended hiatus from solo music that would last nearly four years. In the interim, though, she became a tabloid fixture again for her relationships with R&B pop icon The Weeknd and the DJ Zed, as well as another go-around with Bieber. And she was featured on some of her biggest hits to date, like the DJ Kygo smash It Ain't Me, as well as Marshmello's Wolves, both in 2017. After floating numerous singles, Selena finally returned with a proper solo album in 2019 with Rare, a record that both repaired her with many of her collaborators and doubled down on the sound and themes of Revival. Rare featured her first number one hit, the ballad and lead single, Lose You To Love Me, capping what's been one of the stranger but also weirdly intriguing pop trajectories of the last decade. We'd always go into it blindly I needed to lose you to find me This dancer was killing me softly I needed to hate you to love me Recently, Selena has gone on to lots of extra musical success with her smash HBO cooking show, Selena and Chef, her Hulu series in which she stars with Steve Martin and Martin Short, Only Murders in the Building, and her successful makeup line, Rare Beauty. She is also often noted for her advocacy on behalf of mental health, and she released her first Spanish language album, Revelacion, in March of this year. Selena Gomez has sold over 7 million albums and 22 million singles worldwide, according to Billboard. She's had three number one solo albums, seven top 10 singles, and one number one. Between 2011 and 2018, Selena had a streak of 16 consecutive top 40 hits on the Billboard Hot 100, which is the longest active run of any artist, beginning with Love You Like a Love Song. She has received various accolades and was named Billboard's Woman of the Year in 2017, and she has a large following on social media, at one point being the most followed person on Instagram. 
Here to help me untangle the many mysteries of Selena Gomez's pop career is pop music reporter for the New York Times, Joe Coscarelli. All right, so I'm here with pop music reporter from the New York Times, Joe Coscarelli. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm such a huge fan. I like am a popcast fanatic. This podcast was the result of the popcast Facebook group. I don't know if you know that. I didn't know that. I had a I knew there was some sort of affiliation maybe in the origin story, but I'm I'm really glad to hear that like the Velvet Underground, maybe not that many people listen to podcasts, but everyone who listens to it starts their own <laughs> pop podcast. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just like feel like it's a really like engaged, interested community of pop fans. And I would like pop in there periodically. And one time I went in there and I like posted, hey, guys, like sometimes I think about pop stars like in this tiered system and like here's how all the tiers work roughly. Like, what do you think? And it sparked like quite a vigorous debate. And I thought to myself, hey, maybe this is something. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And yes, everybody listening, if you're not already in it, Popcast Facebook group is a a really good message board, I think. I agree. So we're here today and I'm so pleased to have you on for this particular episode because you have like a very keen eye for like the way that pop trends work and sort of like a, looking at things from like a macro perspective. And obviously, I don't think either of us are like Selena Gomez's biggest fan per se, but... I do feel like she represents something important. And also, I find her pop stardom like somewhat mystifying in a way that I hope this conversation can help clear up because she's obviously a huge star and has been for a long time. And yet, like, her pop career almost feels like, I don't know, like weirdly, like hard to wrap your arms around and almost like peripheral in some yes. ways. I don't know if it's, that makes it's sense. It's part time. It's like, yeah, it's it's part time at best. And I think it's actually really fitting that she was not our first choice for an episode, me and you. And yeah. she was not our second choice. Yeah. And she wasn't even really our third choice. Uh, but I think she was <laughs> the perfect choice. But I think that that is like somehow representative of, of her career. Well, I'm like, is she anybody? first choice like one of the first things I wanted to ask you is like in the year of our lord 2021 like who are the selenators because I run in a circle of people that love pop music are like mega fans of a lot of pop stars in my particular universe and again maybe I'm too old I don't know what it is there's plenty of people I know that are like yeah revival good album liked that song you know like to lose you to love me whatever think bad liars iconic but like I never come across somebody I feel in my own travels that's like, I live and breathe for Selena Gomez. Like, you know what I mean? Like, who are the Selenators in 2021? I think that's totally true. And you're right in I have never met one. I think, like, I might be <laughs> the biggest Selena Gomez fan that I know. And A, my fandom is cumulative. It's 360 degrees. It's not about her music necessarily or first. And yeah, I just, I don't know. I think maybe they were 10 or 11 or 12 years old and they stayed that age. And so we would just never interact with them because we've been older than that since we've known who she was. And so it's possible that they are very young, but I can imagine the type of person, I think, who would choose Selena over any of her peers or contemporaries. And that would be? 
I think it's like maybe like a wallflower, mm. but not an alt wallflower, a mainstream basic right. wallflower. I think I think she's a vessel for pain. I think mm. I think people people see their periods of despondency and victimhood in her. I think like she's so often been a foil or a supporting character or something that things happen to as opposed to somebody that makes things happen. And I think like that's what's made the second half, the last few years, five years maybe of her career so interesting is like she's been trying to take those reins for so long to stop mm. being someone that sounds happen to, relationships happen to, heartbreaks happen to. Like she's she's taken a lot. She's been through a lot, I think, in the public mm. eye. And I think there's like a survivor aspect to her that I can imagine people people clinging to and identifying with. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, I definitely think you're onto something there because one of the things that I was sort of picking up going back to the discography, not in the first half where she just feels like utterly kind of mismatched with a lot of the music that she's making, yeah. but at least like in the post-revival era. And, it, you know, I guess in that era, she sort of has discovered how to utilize her voice. She's not a particularly virtuosic songwriter. I mean, you know, she's she doesn't have some of the like naturally embodied talents that some of her peers do. But like right. one thing that really cuts through the whole thing is as I think you were getting at this sort of like mournfulness like this sort of resigned sadness that like is on her best songs even on a song that feels sexier like a hands to myself or good for you or whatever there's always this sort of underlying undercutting sense of sort of sorrow in her yeah exactly I'm not speaking for her as a human but like for her as a pop figure like she's depressive even when she's mm -hmm. happy. But she's also like soulful. Like I feel like because of all of this sort of darkness, I guess is what we're getting at, yeah. but a different kind of darkness than like a Demi Lovato who she grew up alongside. And I think, yeah, we might talk about that more moving forward in terms of her and her peers. But like her darkness is different than Demi's, but I think it is more accessible in some way. And I think she's a shrewder music maker than Demi. Demi is like a broad instrument and I don't think has ever really found like a musical center. This is one thing that really fascinates me about Selena is I feel like of her peers, like if her primary peers are Demi and Miley, sure. who are much more kind of like naturally music talented I mean I don't know if that's a that's like going too far but I think that that's like kind of obvious I, I bet you Selena would say that herself because yes. um, one thing about Selena and I'm sure we'll get into this is there's like a very sort of like grounded earnest honest self-awareness about herself mm -hmm. that I have picked up on watching interviews with her and watching Selena and Chef and all of these non-musical related things like she's she's very appealing as a person because she kind of seems normie yes. and has like a certain sense of self-awareness but what's interesting to me in relation to her sort of like more musically gifted counterparts from her Disney generation is that of the three, I find that she's also the only one who's like landed on a musical aesthetic that feels like worthwhile. Miley obviously is somebody that like has jumped around and put on so many guises and costumes. I mean, she's clearly extraordinarily talented, but she's never sort of like found like a musical identity that sort of like makes sense. And Demi is sort of same. I feel like Demi, Miley's more fun because she sort of like pops into and does like a sort of campy thing with each sort of aesthetic she picks up. Demi just sort of like does, I feel like whatever 
whatever's trendy at the moment. Yeah. But on Revival and on Rare, her two most recent albums, like Selena's really the only one of the bunch where I could be like, oh, there's a musical aesthetic that she found that really suits her. And like, I could hear a song and be like, that sounds like a Selena Gomez song. Whereas I don't feel like I could do that with the other two. Totally, which is also surprising given that, you know, Selena Gomez is arguably, like you said, not a musician even first and foremost. Like, I think, right. honestly, it's out of necessity. She became such a good collaborator. I think, like, Selena Gomez's career biggest songs, she's not even the lead artist. You know, they're usually collaborations mm. with a DJ or producer. And she found a really amazing set of collaborators for her most recent solo albums. She's a good collaborator as an actor and a producer and I think that's because she doesn't have the musical tools that a Demi or a Miley have namely a voice she's not a big voice and she's not a natural songwriter and so she's had to get in where she fits in and I think like she's fit in very well in so many guises at this point Mm. and I think that that Swiss army knife quality has been her sort of saving grace. That's really interesting, too, because I think that that's a strategy that has served other thin-voiced female singers in the past. If you think about Janet, Jimmy, Terry, or you think about Britney and Max Martin, like, if you don't kind of come in with the powerhouse musical chops, like, you sort of have to find your center by being a great and shrewd collaborator with others. And she sort of stands in that lineage, I feel. Totally. So let's take a minute and rewind for a little bit. Back to the late 2000s, or maybe even a little bit further. I want to get into a little bit about like the Disney machine. And obviously a lot of this is sort of fun to talk about in the context of like Olivia Rodrigo, who I feel like yes. represents a new generation of Disney stars turned pop stars that is sort of like rewriting the rule book in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. My first question for you is like, I guess maybe starting with the Britney Christina, Justin generation, like what has the contours of like Disney stars transitioning into pop stars like look like in the past? Like how have they made that leap? And like what have been the challenges that they've had to face to like actually transition out of Disney stardom and into like legitimized pop stardom? Yeah, I mean, growing up, right, getting sexy, hitting puberty has always been the sort of like turning point for all of these people, right? You think about New Mickey Mouse Club and, you know, you mentioned Justin and Brittany and Christina. Obviously, that's the blueprint for these folks. You ready for some music, TJ? You bet. Here's Justin, Brittany and Dale from our MMC concert singing I Feel For You. And I think, like, you know, they had to break down a lot of barriers Olivia didn't have to face. And I think every generation, like, it gets a little bit quicker and a little bit easier and a little bit more seamless. Mm. You know, we don't have to recount the scars of Britney, especially. And, you know, I would say Christina went through some version of this as well, the sort of, like, sexing up of a still pretty young woman, frankly. Justin went the group route, which gave him probably more leeway. He's also a straight white man, which gives him more leeway to move through the world. (laughs) 
But there were so many successes there, I think. Bridging. The hit rate was high. The hit rate was high. And also the bridging of acting and music, which was a piece of that new Mickey Mouse Club generation, but I think was really codified more in the Selena, Miley, Demi, Next Wave, the Hollywood Records wave, the Jonas Brothers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Selena, she starts on TV. She starts first, uh, you know, on Barney and Friends, like, as a really little kid. Whoa! Oh, Oh, hi, Gianna. Hello, Nick. Both of you were really clapping. (laughs) There's going to be a band here tonight giving a concert. And they're coming this afternoon to practice. A band? A real Root Toot Toot band? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. We'll be clapping after each song they play, so we've been practicing. (laughs) And then, obviously, Disney, she was Wizards of Waverly Place, was her show. You know, she's a child star. She's like textbook child star. But she got a lot of time, I think, to work her way out of that because she started so young. Do you have a sense, I guess, like even just passingly of like what Selena's persona was like in Wizards of Waverly Place versus like the Miley or, or even like Lindsay Lohan or any of those other people in that general area? Yeah, my sense is that it was similar, which is that they're always playing like spunk precocious young girls right who are like mischief makers but innocent ambitious but family oriented you know like they're always like smart asses for for lack of a better term (laughs) what kind of jerk justin would oh you know what i'm good with just saying that okay kitty cats (laughs) i meant you say kitty cats (laughs) wait three monsters yes on waverly place that's exactly what i said You know who you should tell that to? Your vampire girlfriend and her two vampire parents that live on Waverly Place. They were literally wizards competing within their family. Like only one of them got the magic powers. So the whole show was a lead up to seeing like who gets to keep the magic powers. And spoiler, I I hear she won. (laughs) You know, it's interesting actually thinking of her playing a spunky character because it's like Miley definitely spunky like the thought of Miley playing a precocious spunky character like lines up with the Miley we know and love in 2021 I don't feel like spunkiness is really like what I think of like as we were talking about earlier when I think about Selena I don't like think wow what a spunky girl like I think of like an introvert like an introspective sort of quiet person well it's it's interesting that you talk about the transition for Disney stars like I sort of think the life got a little bit wrung out of Selena in her first brush with adult slash teenage fame, right? And like, obviously the elephant in the room when talking about Selena Gomez is always like the Justin Bieber relationship. And I think like that paired with, you know, the health problems that she's had, et cetera, but especially the proximity to Bieber and his various burnouts and flare-ups and, uh, you know, cheating and room, you know, allegedly. uh, Right. And and all of that. I think that birthed the Selena that we know as adults, which is the sort of, like, broken bird. But I think that it speaks to, like, how that machine worked then versus now, where it's like, because I think pop has become so ultra-centered around authenticity, or at least, like, the performance of authenticity, like, 
more so than anything else, more so than musical virtuosity. It's like Olivia really like in 2021 has no choice but to like go out and be like, here's me. Here's my real self. Here's yeah. everything about me. I'm going to curse because that's what I really do. I'm going to pair my celebrity romance travails. Like I'm going to put that in my music. But this generation, like that was not what they were doing. Like the Disney machine at that time was like, actually like we're going to create this one dimensional, one size fits all persona for a lot of you and musical aesthetic for all of them. You know, one thing I really want to get into with you is like, as Selena starts to release music, there is this really defined, like both musical aesthetic, which is this sort of like post Avril, post Kelly pop punk thing. And also like thing that they all sing about kind of like bland one-dimensional like self-empowerment yes. like a uh, very light rage against the machine yes. vibe i hear it every day i hear it all the time i'm never gonna mount too much but they're never gonna change my mind no So I guess my first question for you is, how would you define the contours of this sort of pop punk aesthetic that is being employed by artists like Selena and her other Disney peers as they try to transition under the Disney umbrella into more proper pop stars? Yeah, so I mean, the first three Selena Gomez albums are credited to Selena Gomez and the scene, right? Like her sure. her, her <laughs> pop punk band, which, you know, is insane. So she puts out three albums between 2009 and 2011. They, yeah. they get... I would say more synthetic, pretty much chronologically, as pop is yeah. sort of shifting into the new decade, right? But in the 2009 right. album, like it's still very much crunchy guitars, you know, obviously super processed, but like on the back wave of third wave emo, Avril Lavigne, mm. early Kelly right. Clarkson, Hilary Duff, you know, and like you said, like the Jonas Brothers have this sound. Ashley. Like, Ashley. Ashley, yeah, Simpson. very Ashley yeah. Simpson. <laughs> I mean, like, these these early Selena Gomez and the Scene albums are very much Ashley Simpson albums, but without any, like, verve, you know, without any, like, friction. There's no, like, it's, she feels completely like, like an empty vessel for these generic pop rock songs. You know, even Avril, like, if you sort of squinted, you could be like, okay, she might actually, like, TP my house or something. It makes Avril literally seem like Motley Crue. I, mean, yeah, I don't know. Like, she, it makes or, like, Avril... she's, like, makes Avril sound like Fugazi, you know? like Literally. Just, like, <laughs> like, there's no, yeah, there's just, like, it's uh, it's all music, like, telegraphing an edge. Right. But it has no edge, obviously. So is that the point of it? Is that why they're trading in that style? Because that was like a prevalent musical style of that sort of late 2000s era. It's like you got Pink, you got Kelly, but that's not the only thing that's happening. You also have your like, you know, Britney doing Blackout. You've got Nelly Furtado. You've got Gwen Stefani doing like more synthetic electronic music with like genuinely weirder quality to it. Why do you think the Disney stars like de rigueur musical styling of that period was this pop punk? Thing? Like, What was that serving for them? At the I time? think two things. I think whiteness and sexlessness i think like it's Mm. totally neutered music like it's nobody could ever mistake it for sexy right Right, which i think like is probably 
for the best. Like, it's not like they haven't tried to make people her age sexy uh, in the past. I mean, Britney's first song is Baby One More Time, right. which is like an extraordinarily sex forward song. Right. And the, and these yeah. songs are just not that. And they're extremely white. Like, I think this was a moment where like the top of the pop charts was not yet colored by, pardon the term, by, you know, the sort of like rhythms or percussions of black music. Right. And Selena Gomez, you know, has had an interesting journey with reference to like her sort of race and culture. You know, she's half Mexican. She's now singing in Spanish. But I think she said that she basically spoke, she was fluent in Spanish until she was seven years old, right? Which is about until she becomes a Disney star. And then that side of her is just totally erased for more than a decade, essentially. That's interesting too, yeah. It was this sort of like, ex- like very explicitly sort of like white girl era or version of pop music that was happening at that time. And I think you're so onto the thing about the sexlessness because I think what the rock mode gives them is like the illusion of edge as you were getting at. Like somehow, maybe in this era and still to this day, I guess Olivia bears this out, we still somehow think of like having crunchy guitars as like inherently something that's like cool and like anti-establishment right. <laughs> even though like obviously it's not it's literally but the establishment it's the establishment but it gives them a way to do that in a way that isn't sort of like i guess this generation of disney stars maybe it wouldn't have been cool at that time for a 16 year old selena gomez to be dancing down a school hallway with her shirt tied up and sort of like being lascivious in that way. And the pop punk aesthetic sort of gave her a way to be like, I'm still cool to kids, but it's not because I'm being sexy. I think that's a really important point of why they all gravitated towards this style. Here's a question for you. Do you like, do you come back to slash know any songs from the first two Selena Gomez and the scene albums? No. Tell and A Year Without Rain. Like they're, no, I've never I, heard any of them until I was preparing for this. Yeah, like they're just, I mean, they're for children, you know, in a pretty explicit way. They're, there's no personality in them. You don't learn anything about Selena Gomez. There's a few that I think are like well-crafted. There's an early single uh, called Crush from the first album that I think is pretty good. Like, could be literally anyone, right? And would be better suited sometimes being someone other than Selena, who is not particularly well suited for the style of music in her vocals. I don't yeah, think. I think that's right. So in this first era of Selena albums, which are coinciding with Demi albums, Miley albums, whatever, late 2000s, still fully ensconced in the Disney machine, how are Miley, Demi, Selena registering? Is it just with the Disney fans? Like, how does broader pop culture relate to them? I think this is another another question where you can see the answer in Olivia, which is that before Driver's License, Olivia Rodriguez was famous. Uh, in mm-hmm. some way, right? She was on right. high, high School, the musical, the musical, the series, the movie, yeah. the the streaming platform, <laughs> you know, whatever whatever you want to call it. Like, she was yeah. already a working actress. She was on this show, Bizarre Vark, but, like, if you're over the age of 12, I guess, you've never heard of this person. And, right. and, and it's funny because now we're used to this, right, where there's so many niche celebrities that, like, you can be the most famous person on TikTok or in your corner of YouTube or whatever, and somebody on the street might not know who you are, but this was still like the tail end of like a monoculture era. And yet, if you weren't a child or had a child, you didn't know who these people were when they were strictly Disney Channel stars. It was very, very, I think, penned in. Like, I remember distinctly hearing early Miley Hannah Montana music 
when I was in college and my sister was, you know, in middle school and high school, I have a sister who's like six, six years younger than me. So she right. was like my window into that world. And I remember hearing some of those songs and being like, oh, these are sneaky good. Like, I, I right. like, I'm, I'm really <laughs> messing with some of these early Miley singles. Like, yeah. Seven Things, you know, is like. Oh, Seven Things, banger. Seven Things I Hate About You. Total, total banger, but I remember hearing it on my sister's CD, like in the car, like home for winter break or whatever, yeah. you know, I'm 19 years old. So I wasn't really listening to, to Disney stars, but I remember that period where you start to realize like, oh, they're going to break out of this shell and like adults might know who they are. Yeah. But Miley way better suited for this kind of music. Miley has more memorable songs from this era because she makes much more sense as like a pseudo Kelly Clarkson than Selena Definitely. Does. So one thing that sort of happens, as you were sort of mentioning over the course of the Selena Gomez and the, and the scene albums, it starts to happen pretty much on the second record, but fully on the third, is that the notion that this is some sort of band or some sort of like rock project really starts to disintegrate as, I guess, broader pop music moves into like the EDM era. The Selena Gomez and the scene records continue to sort of like move in a more electronic, dance music-y focused direction as they move through the three. She does manage to kind of break through a bit into broader public consciousness with a single from the third record, which is 2011's When the Sun Goes Down. And the song is called Love You Like a Love Song, which becomes like a bona fide hit outside of the Disney So what is it about this song or this guy's on Selena that allows it to break out in a way that the pop punk stuff is not? Honestly, really? it's what in country they call like the lyric, which is like the like little joke, the little like turn of phrase that's going to stick with people. Like it's so absurd, right? Like it's right. like a perfect distillation of dumb pop music. You know, I like <laughs> I love you like a love song. It's robotic, but it's beautiful. Like it's all it's sort of profound in its stupidity. It is. And I think undeniable. It's undeniably silly. It, it feels pretty knowingly silly. And it just has this sound, right? Like, whereas the other stuff was just filler for Radio Disney between like Miley and Jonas Brothers songs. It sounds a little bit more adult and it's of its moment. It's like you can play that song and know basically what year it is if you care at all about popular music <laughs> yeah you know i thought about it a little bit and i thought there were a few little things that i thought might have been minor clicks i'm not sure like if i'm reading too much into it but clearly she started to understand that her musical forebearers were not kelly clarkson and mm -hmm. pink and were instead kylie minogue and britney yes. i hear a little bit of can't get you out of my head in there yep. Maybe she was starting to recognize like what she could do with her voice that made more sense because one thing that she leans further into in her career is sort of this cooing talk singy thing mm -hmm. that she does on like Bad Liar. She does it on Hands to Myself. Yeah, the like whisper singing. Can't keep my hands to myself. 
Yeah, and it's almost like she's just sort of speaking the lyrics. It's yeah. almost like borderline not even singing at all. She is singing on this song more, but I felt like she was beginning to understand that for her voice to work, she had to get right up close to the mic and just sort of like coo in the style of Kylie, and Britney, and Janet. That was one of the first songs where I'm like, okay, maybe she gets that piece a little bit and that's why that song works in a way that like, maybe that song wouldn't work for Miley Cyrus. You know what I mean? Right. Well, here's the thing. And we've been slagging a little bit on her voice so far, Her, but I think it's crucial to say that that is her singing voice. Her speaking voice is incredible. It's like, mm-hmm. it's a so real, soothing. it's a real instrument. Like it's a little bit nasally. It's like a little bit deep, you know, and the combination of it with her like forever cherubic kid cheeks, like she has an amazing speaking voice. I mean, it's safe to say that I, I was sad. It's like, whatever. But I think to me, it's, it's such a distant thought. Mm. I'm not in that place anymore. And I think maybe before I used to lie and say that so that people would get it, but I kind of show everything that I'm feeling in my face. Yeah. And I think like Mm -hmm. it's really helped her acting career. And I think the more of her speaking voice that she's been able to put in her singing voice, the better her vocal performances have been. So before we get into Stars Dance, Spring Breakers comes first, right? So that's kind of her first major breakout. And just for some quick background, Spring Breakers is an indie film by the sort of like dark humor, surrealist director, Harmony Corinne, and is about like a group of high school girls and involves a lot of crime, drug use, et cetera, et cetera. So it really recontextualizes like a heretofore pretty squeaky clean Selena Gomez in the context of this sort of edgy indie film. What is the purpose of doing Spring Breakers and how does that sort of help maybe set up this next album era? Yes. So they're happening essentially simultaneously, right? Spring Breakers is coming Mm -hmm. out spring of 2013. Stars Dance comes out that summer. And that is, for my money, the most masterful, I'm grown up now move in the Disney universe history. Wow. Really? Like, okay, I'm from Florida. More than the snake? More than the... uh... In terms of artistic... More than Robin Legitimacy? Yeah, I I mean, I love Spring Breakers. I love Harmony Korean. I love anything to do with Florida. I think (laughs) she gets to still play the good girl in Mm. a movie that's all about debauchery and not being the good girl. I think her performance is incredible. And Mm. it allowed her to walk this line between like, I'm doing something wacky and like, I'm an adult now, but also not really jar anyone to the point that she was gonna get, what did we call it before we called it, canceled. So tired of seeing the same things every single day. Everybody's miserable here because everybody sees the same things. They wake up in the same bed, same houses, same depressing streetlights. One gas station, grass, it's not even green, it's brown. Everything's the same and everyone's just sad. I don't wanna end up like them, I really wanna get out of here. There's more than just spring break. It's their chance to see something different. 
I don't think she faced a backlash like Britney and Miley did, which is why I'm ranking it as so effective. But it wasn't like a huge movie, though. That's the thing. Though. That, like, it wasn't yes. like as big of a pop cultural moment as any of that. But, but I think to its credit, it, it was sly, right? Mm. It was able to telegraph to a certain kind of person like this is Selena Gomez. Maybe if you've heard of her, you know, she's like a Disney girl, but she's not like that anymore without yeah. blowing up the whole thing. Right. It was a very seamless and drawn out mm. transition. Right. The 2012, 2013, even into 2014 and 2015, like she took a long time to shed that skin. Right. But was signaling to like, for lack of a better term, tastemakers early on mm. what kind of stuff she wanted to be affiliated with. So, as you said, Spring Breakers drop spring 2013 and then she starts to roll out her first solo record quote unquote although disputed whether we can even frame it that way it's right. it feels like an extension of selena gomez and the steam we're just dropping the name and it's called stars dance so how would you describe what the music is like on stars dance and how she is attempting perhaps unsuccessfully to signal this sort of like adult crossover pop stardom it's generic EDM dance pop. You know, there's still Rock Mafia on there, but, you know, you're getting some Stargate. You're getting some early mm -hmm. Monsters and Strangers, you know, the Cataracts. Like, it's early 2000s dance pop, and it's not that good <laughs> to me. Joe, I was like, I, I hadn't really listened to it as a whole album, like probably since the, it came out. And I was like, this is not good. And I'm somebody like, I'm a gay pop fan. Like I'm susceptible to any sort of like <laughs> girlies doing dance pop guys, you know, like it's not yeah. that hard to suck me in. I found it like a really unnatural fit for her in a lot of ways. Like A, I don't feel like she's getting the best material. Like when I hear her Come and Get It, which is her first top 10 single, it's her first real crossover hit, even more so than Love You Like a Love Song. She does not sound natural on that song. And obviously no. the lore of Come and Get It is that it was written for Rihanna and Rihanna passed on it. And frankly, like, I can kind of understand why when I hear yes. Come and Get It, you know? And let me just also say that I was watching interviews with her and she has publicly come out and been like, these songs got service to me. I don't have any real personal connection to any of this. She said explicitly, I would never say when you're ready, come and get it. That is nothing I would ever say in my yeah. life. So, and and I you can hear that. I feel like that's evident to me when I listen to it. And then the other thing is like, when you watch her live performances, She's not like a great pop star performer. Do you not know what I mean? Like it's she can't an dance. awkward fit. She's not she a can't dancer. dance and she can't sing live that well either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, that's this is this is just bad fit. You know what I mean? And yeah. like, like you're yes. saying, like she's never gonna be your first choice for pop song material. She's never gonna be your second choice, your third choice, your fourth choice. No. And you hear that in these records. And like, 
the thing that she was able to do to get away from this is, as we teased early on, like, find her own collaborators. Like, right. co-write and find her right. own collaborators to find her own sound. Like, this is somebody else's leftovers. Like, this whole exactly. album is somebody mm-hmm. else's leftovers. And, like, come and get it. It's a smash, right? Like, that's a smash. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that's a smash. But I don't like yeah. it, you know? I, I no, like, I'm annoyed by it. Uh, if anything. It's unnatural feeling. It, you can feel the dissonance, I find. Like, you know, Selena will discover a certain sexuality in her music later that will be a huge piece of, like, some of her greatest music that does feel authentic to her. But it's quite different than the sort of, like, broad come-hither sexuality of a Britney or this phase of this is This is acting. This is, uh, you know, not particularly no. good acting. She's singing an Esther Dean song. Yes. She's not the right vehicle for it. She is a vehicle for things, and she can can be an effective vehicle for things, but she's yes. not an effective vehicle for this. Nor is she for the sort of like bratty punk party animal birthday, that song, Birthday, the lead song. Yeah. I was like, this is such an ill fit for her. She is not like a bratty punk Kesha kind of styled thing. Yeah. Blow your dreams, blow your dreams, blow your dreams away with me. Blow your dreams, blow your dreams, blow your dreams away so with yeah. me. she come out of this era like having achieved what this was meant to do for her do you think i mean you know it's 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 a number one album right looking at the sales figures i don't even think it went gold you know it's like that's what i'm saying but but to me it feels like and especially with the spring breakers timeline it feels like a contractual obligation right she's finishing her contract and you see that i think because the next project she puts out ultimately the last project she puts out on hollywood records is a greatest hits with a single on it that right. always signals to you especially when that's the last release that signals like i'm i'm ready to go but i have one more album on my deal yeah it was a contractual obligation album but i do remember from the time that it really was framed to us as a coming out party i remember when come and get it came out like the narrative that was being formed around this was like all right selena gomez she's a grown-up now this is her first real music i mean you listen to this and that doesn't come across at all but that was how they tried to position i think they wanted this to be her big coming out party yeah and I don't think it achieved that particularly well. And no. I say that because I don't, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is like, did this do anything to expand Selena Gomez's fan base? Like, no, probably less than Spring Breakers, which was like barely seen, yes. as you said, it was just like a small art house movie. And yet that probably did more to expand her fan base than like having a smash top 10 hit. And the other thing that I feel like in this period did more to establish her fan base or at least to establish her as a figure outside of the Disney universe was her adjacency to other celebrities. I mean, this is sort of like the crystallizing in public consciousness era of her friendship with Taylor Swift. Yes, Um, which we haven't talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second. Like, how does Selena's sort of proximity to other bigger celebrities affect her own personal pop stardom in this period? I mean, I think it was both a boon for her popularity, but also... Yeah, she was in a supporting role, right? With Bieber. Yes. First and foremost. And then with Taylor, who really like little sist her like for the next like decade or so, you know, she was basically (laughs) like- To this day. Yeah, to this day. And Taylor was sort of the, I think in terms of like the public narrative, like Bieber was a bad boy 
boyfriend who was always making her cry and Taylor was like the friend telling her like you're better than that like don't go back to him and then and then she like wouldn't listen you know in my like fan ficky brain and like this is total speculation whatever like I wonder what it's like for a pop star like Selena Gomez to be best friends with a pop star like Taylor Swift like what is it like when you're in the same field as your best friend but your best friend is like the fucking goat and you're sort of like not that distinguishable. Like that is a very interesting dynamic. I've spent a lot of time wondering about that. And your boyfriend. And your boyfriend. And your boyfriend. Like, yes. I mean, and like while we're on the topic, another iconic Selena moment that she has very little to do with or that has very little to do with her music is Nikki on the Bieber song, Beauty and oh the Beast. Oh my God, watch out when, for Selena. Yeah, when she says, buns out wiener, but I gotta keep an eye out for Selena. Buns out wiener, but I gotta keep an eye out for Selena. <laughs> like, for me, Selena goaded, if only for being the <laughs> subject of that rhyme, <laughs> right around this same period. <laughs> No, that was like Selena's biggest hit, and she wasn't <laughs> even a vocalist on it. Oh yes, my God. correct. I, I think you really nailed it at the beginning of the conversation where it's like Selena's pop stardom is like so largely not based in her musical output. It's like so much about all of these other things and like dancing with her clapping mix to Taylor at the award shows right. and like the celebrity narrative with Justin Bieber and like, you know, making the weird Harmony Corinne movie and like, and then I guess eventually also becoming like an advocate for like mental health and for going through depression and all of that kind of stuff and yet this period we're approaching she starts to make some really good music well that's it and that's where we got to go so yeah so as we said selena sort of leaves this period i think kind of like not that far along in like the establishment of like legitimate pop career i mean she's had four records at this point and i don't feel like we've really moved the needle very far aside from like come and get it being a hit but again i feel like it's like love you like a love song that was like the kind of hit where it was like i don't think anybody cared that that was selena gomez singing that song it was like maybe you heard it at cbs and you were like you know bopping along in the aisle and that was kind of it on that so definitely in the interim after the uh, stars dance era when she's diagnosed with lupus is that correct yeah i believe so And she also has this giant sort of public narrative thing happen, which I think is a really powerful thing for setting up revival, which is that she has this humongous, maybe her biggest pop cultural moment yet, which is this breakup with Justin Bieber. So before we get to revival, though, pop music also shifts pretty heavily between 2013 and 2015. Can you speak a little bit about like what happens there? I'm thinking specifically of Lord. Um, yes. and Lana Del Rey. But, uh, yes. but can you talk a little bit about like sort of the move from the maximalist EDM wave that Stars Dance was sort of at the tail end of and then sort of what we move into in 2014 and 2015? I mean, you spoiled my answer, which is Lord happens and Lana Del Rey happen, right? Like, and that's the shift, right? Like from Katy Perry to Lana Del Rey. Swinging in the backyard, pull up in your fast car, whistling my name. Open up a beer and you say get over here and play a video game. That allows Selena Gomez to live in a way that's not false for her, right? Mm. She she gets to be 
the wallflower, the sad girl, the heartbroken one, right. the like can't stay away from bad boys, but not in a way that's empowering in a way that's, or maybe it is still empowering, but it, you know, <laughs> arguable whether Lana's fetishization of War- bad men is empowering. Um, but, but I think all of that, you're going to start to see Alessia Cara. I'm sorry if I seem uninterested or I'm not listening or I'm Eventually, you're going to start mm-hmm. to see Billie Eilish. And Selena fits much better in that mode, right? That's turned down. It's not four on the floor at the club. It's girl in her bedroom on headphones. Like that. Sad it's girl. just sad girl. Yeah. Like uh, Selena Gomez is a sad girl icon. And she needed that turn. So you're getting to revival here. But what happens in between is actually, I think, what Selena considers her turning point from having spoken to her right after this period. And to me, looking back on it, really is a big inflection point. And that's the final Hollywood Records single she puts out, The Heart Wants What It Wants. And specifically, her performance of it at the AMAs in 2014, where she's sort of laid bare on this stage. Her voice sounds probably better than it ever has. To me, that's the first time where she stands on stage. She doesn't dance, crucially. Mm. You know, she's alone. Mm. She has, like, these angel wings or whatever, you know, and and she's she's there. She's broken, but she's alive. You know, like, the breakup, the health problems, all of that. The, the public narrative and the art meet for the first time. Yes. Broken but Alive is an absolute great distillation of the best of what Selena Gomez offers, like, on record. And The Heart Wants What It Wants does feel Lana-ish, you know? And I think it's not just the sad girl thing that suits her well, which it does. There's no question that this move into sort of this introspective, sad girl music really is potentially the best thing that ever happened to Selena Gomez's pop career. But it's also the sparseness of the production and the slowed down Mm -hmm. tempo is what allows her voice to work on record in a way that it never fully functions well on these sort of like maximalist EDM songs. And I think that that's another sort of critical aspect of it. Lord, Lana, there are also two girls who sort of coo right up next to the microphone in a way that I feel like the best Selena Gomez songs do as well. So it's like both the content and the form are what like sort of allow Selena to sort of slide in and be like almost like maybe be like the biggest mainstream or like the Disney-fied mainstream version of like some of these more, you know, subversive pop stars of this moment or something like that. And the heart wants what it wants is where we sort of first see that for the first time. Totally. Selena's pocket, especially as we were talking about vocally, is like husky, not like shrill, you know? Like, so (laughs) she needs to lean into her huskiness, not try to be dance floor Rihanna. All right, so then we get the lead single from Revival, which is called Good For You. Gonna wear that dress you like, skin tight, do my hair blue real nice, and sink up, paint my skin to your heart beating. Cause I just wanna look good for you, good for you, uh-huh. I just wanna look good for you, good for you, uh-huh. Let me show you how proud I am to be yours, leave this dress a mess on the floor, still look good. 
now let's talk about good for you and like how potentially good for you achieves some of the sort of crossover thing that she was attempting on the previous record but does it so so much better talk to me about the sound of good for you and like why that record works i mean it's lana core right it's breathy intimate it's it's believably sexy in a way that like the dance pop stuff is unbelievably sexy and using unbelievable in the literal sense <laughs> uh, yes it's like, sultry rather than it's sexy. It's sultry perhaps. is a better word. Yeah. I mean, you know, everybody, as soon as it came out, was just saying it's a Lana Del Rey ripoff. Don't make me sad. Don't make me cry. Sometimes life is not enough and the road gets tough. I don't know why. But it transcended mm -hmm. that, I think, because, like, Lana didn't have songs the size of Good For You that sounded like no. Good For You and that were as big as Good For You. Well, it was taking the Lana thing and giving it, like, a very broad pop sheen, I guess. Right. So this was the period where I wrote about Selena Gomez early yes. on in my tenure at The Times. And it was one of the reasons I wanted to do that piece was because of the success of Good For You and because I liked what I'd heard of that upcoming album. But she found collaborators you know right. and we didn't mention this when we talked about stars dance but there are songs on that album written by julia michaels who becomes selena's cyrano you know basically for yeah, like literally. lack of a better term like you know they really connected in the studio there's of similar ages of similar backgrounds what is julia's background and like give us a little bit of a sense of who julia michaels and justin tranter are I wrote a story about them around the same time. You know, this was 2015, 2016. She was in her early 20s. She was a sort of a studio kid, like had been writing unsuccessfully for a while, yeah. but obviously had a talent. We, you know, did a lot of album tracks for bad pop albums, like the ones that <laughs> ended up with Selena, but then yeah. was paired with Justin Tranter, who was in a band called Semi Precious Weapons, like a sort of like New York queer glam rock band perhaps they, most they, famous for being friends with uh, gaga and gaga yeah in, in, yeah. yeah in the in the stephanie germanata days and they become this therapeutic songwriting duo that mm. gets put in studios with stars who are going through things they become filters for these public narratives and they basically bring the music to the tabloids you'd say that's kind of like what distinguishes them yeah i you know in in the time i spent with them in the studio at that time like julia especially she's like this bundle of nerves right she became a pop singer in her own right But she was so raw. She was mm. so anxious, depressed, mm. scatterbrained, like nervous. And I think she and Selena really vibed on that level, which is like mm. a woman in her early 20s, like just trying to get through all the bullshit, you know? And they just right. found a real kinship. Justin, I think, became, they're probably a decade older than these two young women and yes. became this like shepherd of their emotions and knew more about the studio and was able to like, channel their raw antic heartbroken energy and they just became this triumvirate and they found a sound and crucially i think they listened to selena gomez which like nobody had probably ever done in her career so when you hear the rest of revival 
which does weirdly work as like a pretty unified aesthetic experience, I think, in a lot of ways. Where do we start to hear the Selena Gomez sound crystallize or Selena, Justin, and Julia's sound crystallize? I mean, I think you hear it in the very first seconds of the first track, right? Like the title song, Revival. Revival, to me, like, great album opener, great introduction to Selena Gomez, adult. Thematically, lyrically, the sound, again, minimal, spare, nice bass, percussion, this cooing, this breathiness, like, right away, I remember hearing this album in 2015 or whatever it was before it came out and thinking, like, oh, they did it, you know, like, they really found a lane. Absolutely, and I think it provides these, like, sort of spacious areas for her to, like, utilize her small talk singy voice and then there's moments on the second song which is kill him with kindness which is Mm -hmm. you know technically a dance track but what was really interesting is like we were talking about how she doesn't work on sort of these maximalist edm dance tracks but it's almost like if love you like a love song was stripped down to its like core parts and gives her a lot of space to like coo be quiet and but still be in the context of like an up-tempo song the world can be a nasty place you know it i know it yeah We don't have to fall from grace Put down the weapons you fight with And kill them with kindness Kill them with kindness Kill them, kill them, kill them with kindness All of these songs, even the ones that, like you say, are just dance songs, like they feel idiosyncratic, right? They feel yes, that's that's a good word. And and like that, "Kill 'Em with Kindness" you're talking about, like that's I think Benny Blanco worked on that one. He's another yeah. person who is known for getting the most personal performances and subject matter out of his collaborations with pop stars, people who have been sanded down into nothing glossiness. Like these are the songwriters and the producers of this era who are known to like bring something different out of people, whether it's Sheeran or Bieber or Gomez. Like, I think that's what she needed was like therapy, handholding, friendship, Mm. collaboration. And I think like you hear it, this sounds like homemade in some way, even though it's big budget, right? Right, like bedroom pop. Right. Yes. And kill him with kindness also is a very Selena-esque sort of turn of phrase. Cause I feel like instead of trying to make her into this sort of like aggressively sexual Rihanna cipher, the notion of like writing a dance song about like being nice to people and right. like having a good attitude feels like very authentic to like Selena in this way that so much of the music on stars dance did not, you know what I mean? Like right. in a way, some of the music comes across as if she's sort of giving herself affirmations or something like that. You know what I Definitely. mean? Like, I mean, I think that, yeah, the whole album to me sounds like a pep talk for herself. Yeah. 
Exactly. And like she in a way creates this sort of self-help core pop music, which I think has been very refined by Ariana on a lot of her later records. Mm. But there's this whole sort of like substrain of contemporary pop that's like self-talk, like sloganeering about like self-help, therapeutic, intimate. I don't know. I think about all of Thank You Next, but also like on Ariana's recent record, that song Just Like Magic, where she's like, I get everything I want because I attract it. I manifest things. Keep my conscience clear, that's why I'm so magnetic Manifested, I finesse Take my pen and write some love that has to happen <laughs> I feel like this album is like maybe patient zero in that movement. Yeah, and that's another result of close, intimate collaboration with peers, which I think is mm. something you see in these pop albums. You know, Ariana has... Taylor Parks and Victoria Monet that became right. her backers, her believers, her voice, her cheerleaders, her lyricists, you know, her blackness uh, yeah. <laughs> in, in, yeah. in that case. Um, yeah. But I think their relationship with Ariana is very similar to the one that Justin and Julia mm. found with Selena and then with Gwen Stefani and, you know, with Britney and Brittany. with the other people that they've collaborated with. That moment of like, Let's put these people in a room with individuals that make them feel comfortable instead of uncomfortable. Interesting and also interesting to bring up Britney again, because I also think one of the revelations of this album is the song Hands to Myself, which is a Max Martin produced song, obviously, you know, intimately tied to Britney. And I think that song is like a revelation for numerous reasons for Selena. A, it is like the apex of this sort of like whisper singing voice and like this production that's barely there. I mean, talk about production that is like stripped down to its parts. Can't keep my hands to myself No matter how hard I'm trying to I want you all to myself Your metaphorical gin and juice So come on, give me a taste Of what it's like to be next to you Won't let one drop go to waste Your metaphorical gin and juice the most minimal of production and filled with these weird idiosyncratic lyrics that you'd never heard on her earlier work your metaphorical gin and juice you know all of these weird things totally but further sort of establishes her in the lineage of the sort of janet and i also sort of thought robin a little bit on yes Hands to Myself. oh this is totally a robin tribute your battery's low did you crash again Robot boy, do you need a friend? I think there's so much Justin and Julia in this song, but Selena is able to make it hers as well. To me, this is far and away the best Selena Gomez song. Not even close. No question. I, the minimalism of this, like when I first heard it, I thought this was the number one smash. Like I thought this should have been the biggest song in the world. I think it was yeah. like pretty, you I know, think it was top big. 10. Yeah, 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 it was yeah. pretty big, but I, I don't think she's ever topped it. Yeah, and Hands to Myself really represents the distillation of so much about what makes Selena unique, which is that even though it's this sort of like sexy, frothy pop song, the mournful quality is still there. And there's this sort of like pent upness. Like there's a lot of layers to what's going on there that she brings in her performance to the entire thing that maybe another performer wouldn't have been able to deliver. That she does by sort of like being able to master how to use her voice on that song and also how to fully express her emotions 
in the way that obviously Julie and Justin are providing the avenue for. So Revival becomes by far her most commercially successful record. There's three hits, there's Good For You, there's Hands To Myself, and then there's Same Old Love, which to me is like the most generic mm -hmm. of the three singles, but a, I think. But a good song. I'm so sick of that same old love, that How does she sort of emerge from this period? Is she now sort of in more direct conversation with the other big pop stars of this mid-2000s period in a more legitimate way? I never felt like she was really in conversation. Like I, I like even, <laughs> even when she becomes like the biggest version of herself, she starts to be entering moguldom in this era, right? You know, she produces 13 Reasons Why, you know, she has this production company. She eventually right. goes back to acting. Like, I don't know. She always has felt apart from like the rat race, mm. really. I think like she has other stuff. By choice? Sort of by choice. I think her health plays a big role in it. Like, she's always taking time off, right? Her mental health, I think, has also played a role in it. Like, she's constantly stepping back, right? Every time she's, like, about yes. to explode or exploding, it feels like she steps back and, mm. and recharges. And I think, like, from that time that I spent with her around this period, you know, it was relatively brief. She didn't give a ton of access because of who she was. But w the one thing I'll always remember is, like, she was living with roommates and they were, like, and maybe they're the ones still on Selena and Chef, but, like, yeah. she was living with, like, a real estate agent. You know, she was, like hanging out at home, like baking yeah, cookies. She has normie friends, yeah. She has yeah. totally normie friends. She wanted so bad to have a normal life. I think she's so scarred by the Bieber tabloid era. Mm. Uh, and the combination of her physical health and her mental health was just never going to let her go for it in the way. You know, like Taylor's indestructible. Like Taylor I is mean, like mental. Like, yeah, like Taylor has like the mental fortitude of Phil Jackson plus Kobe Bryant, you know, like Literally, like Selena is not a killer. You know, she's not mm -hmm. she's she's Kill him with not kindness, she says. The other thing that I recalled in getting a secondary quote from Taylor for that profile, and, you know, she said that her childhood was defined by working hard with the major business decisions primarily made by others. The coolest part of watching her grow up has been seeing her gradually take the creative reins and start to steer the ship. That's a nice sentiment, mm. and I think very true, but, like, seeing her gradually take the reins and start to steer the ship, you know, like, it's, like, very, like, tentative. Selena's blossoming has always been very very tentative. She's like a reluctant pop star. Yes. I was batting this around with my sister earlier because my sister like loves Selena and Chef and then like got into this whole thing of trying to figure out like what Selena like what Selena's pop stardom was. And it is kind of mystifying because on the one hand on Revival it's like you get a taste of what could make her a very like compelling and unique pop star, but mm -hmm. then it's like you watch her perform and it's just like she's not that engaged Aged. she's not that naturally good at it like the trappings of pop stardom don't really suit her that well I feel like on revival I start to get the sense of like okay yes she likes to use music as therapy yeah. I do feel like this is something she's using to express herself but it's almost like the trappings of pop stardom don't suit her well at all and I almost wonder if she hadn't been a Disney star but she did end up making music like would she be doing it under all these pretenses of pop stardom like in a way she's suffocating by what is required of a pop star and she's not particularly good at any of those things. I think that's right. I think she was gifted or depending on how you look at it, forced to have an audience 
and her whole career as an adult has been trying to figure out what to do with that audience. And I still, I come back to my earlier question, which is like, who are the Selenators? I still don't feel totally clear on that. Like, even as she's landed on a musical aesthetic, even as she's had a series of hit records, like, I still don't get who's buying tickets to go see Selena Gomez in concert. And yet here she is touring arenas. Like, who are these people? I mean, I know we got and got at this earlier, but, you know, that's still something that I find mysterious and maybe it has to do with like the increasing nicheness of pop stardom and there's just people mm-hmm. that feel committed to her from her child star days and they're just still in the game and, they, and she still means a lot to them and as you said I'm sure there's a lot of people that see her as someone that's like persevered through a lot and they feel inspired by that but like it's just interesting because every other major pop star arena touring pop star I just feel like I encounter people in my day to day life who are like I fucking stand this person so hard I would die for this person and I'll spend $500 to go see Taylor at MetLife Stadium. Like, no problem. Take my, take it all, queen. You know, like that kind of vibe. And I just like still, I never get that feeling with Selena. And yet she still operates as a giant pop star. It's a very strange combination of things. I don't think she's ever wanted that out of her fans. Like, I think Taylor, Gaga... Whoever else you want to name, Beyonce, Rihanna, Charlie XCX, Carly Rae Jackson. Any of those people want so badly to have people who would spend their piggy bank to go see them among 50,000 people. Like, that's what drives them. And, like, I just never got the sense that that's what drives Selena. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that brings me to another thought, which is, like, as we've talked about Selena as collaborator, like, her biggest records are with DJs and like where she's a piece. I was looking at Spotify earlier and like shocked to find she has three songs with more than a billion plays on Spotify. Uh, Can you, did you do this? Can you name them? No, but I bet you I could guess. Okay, let's hear Um, it. The Kygo song. Yes, It Ain't Me, classic. Yes. Incredible song. Great song for CBS. Um, uh, well, I called it I called it Ubercore the other day. I said it was Ubercore. It's very Ubercore. Uh, the Marshmallow song. Yes, Wolves with Marshmallow. Another good one. Do you like Do you like Wolves? Yeah, it reminds me a lot of like the Avicii country EDM songs. Yeah, which are aging well i prefer it ain't me personally um, oh yeah by by a mile the other one oh the 13 reasons why song no that's although that's close i think that's at like 800 million i don't know what's the third one the third it's, one it's obvious but she's a pretty she's a pretty small role in it taki taki oh taki taki right she's the, like the least important part of taki taki Yes, but honestly, kills her verse. <laughs> yeah. In my yeah. So there's this whole interim period between Revival and her recent record, Rare, that we're sort of t- dancing around here, where she has these sort of massive EDM DJ crossover hits, like It Ain't Me with Kygo and the Marshmallow song. And she tosses off a couple of her own songs that fit more in with the vibe of Revival, especially Bad Liar, that are some of her best, but don't click commercially. Ooh. 
I love Bad Liar. Again, it's very similar to Handsome Myself. It's just very sparse, yeah. super idiosyncratic lyrics. Like, there's so many funny ones. Like, just like the Battle of Troy, there's nothing settled here. Trying to play a coy, trying to make it disappear. But just like the Battle of Troy, there's nothing settled here. I, I, Classic I clunkers, just like Handsome <laughs> Myself. I almost, and I think, like, I hear Justin in those lines. I don't know if they've taken credit for, for them oh, specifically. But yeah. it's almost like they needed a line as inexplicable as the metaphorical gin and juice line. <laughs> metaphorical gin and juice really goes down in history. Every time I watch you, Serpentine is another funny one. Um, and, but the delivery on that is killer. I do think Bad Liar, like, if it's not one, it's number two of her yes. best songs. I mean, it's a fucking weird-ass song. I mean, Selena works well in these really quirky, minimalist, just left-of-center pop vibes but the thing is like bad liar doesn't connect and become a big hit like obviously like the kaigo song would become and again this sort of highlights this conflict in her where i'm like what if she did lean in and fully make a record of bad liars and like didn't give a fuck about being a pop star like i feel like that's more what she wants like i'd be interested in what it would be like for selena gomez to make the record that she wanted to make and then like perform it the way that felt comfortable to her you know what i mean which would probably like, be not performing it at all you know not performing <laughs> like, it at all or like performing it on a stool or something and this brings us into our final topic here which is rare her last record which is led off by this song lose you to love me which becomes her first number one song we'd always go into it blindly i needed to lose you to find me this dancer was killing me softly i needed to hate you to Is Lose You to Love Me an emblematic Selena song to you? A and an emblematic Justin Julia Selena song? It's emblematic in the sense that it's like her tried and true subject matter. It's very right. much the heart wants what it wants, updated by a few years. More personal, um, more more directly yes. personal. Like I find it, I think I pointed this out to you in the outline. Like there's something about the thank you post, thank you next thing of like really directly naming things that yeah. like sort of help bring together the celebrity narrative and the pop it. I gave my all and they all know it. You'll turn me down and I'll show it. And so the moms you replace us. Like it was easy, made me think I deserved it. And the thick of healing. Yeah. It's yeah. not my favorite on just a song level, but I think it's the most effective packaging up to this point of all of those things that build up the Selena Gomez brand. It feels true to her, you know? It feels it feels true. It's not my personal favorite either, but I understand why it's her single number one hit. It really effectively brings together like all of the musical aesthetic stuff we've been talking about and the celebrity narrative in this way that like was kind of undeniable, I guess, for people, especially having taken four years off from putting out an album. So she had a lot of like working for her in that area. And I think we've talked quite a bit about sort of this mournful quality that she brings to a lot of her best work, as well as this feeling of resilience. This song really captures both of those things. In terms of Rare, 
what's your vibe on rare? Like how does rare build on the revival sound? And like, how do you feel about rare? It's a little bit of a miss to me. It's like, it's mm. too similar, but not better. I like the title track a lot. Me too. It feels like you just feels very much like the flip side of revival and i didn't feel a lot of growth though i like like you said like a, a lot of the stuff that came out in between that i'm actually surprised to remember isn't part of like the core album tracklist i think is better and more evocative and more of a path forward for her whereas like a lot of it sounds like retread to me but mm. i was surprised i feel like people caught on to rare it, i in... i personally like rare but i do agree that the sameness highlights some of the weaknesses which is that she's not even with the assistance of Justin and Julia is not like a, an incredible lyricist. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of sort of songs on here to me that feel like generically written. But what mm-hmm. I really do like about this and what I really do respect about it is like she has developed this aesthetic and I do kind of feel like it's important that she sees this through. I mean, again, obviously we wish she would be expanding on it a little bit more, but mm-hmm. I do kind of respect that like in the context of like so many pop stars that flounder around trying to find a sound or trying to find a mode that works for them she did find that and it is like a song an album that you can listen to and really has like a cohesive sound to it and like a cohesive theme to it but I also sort of feel like again I guess coming back to what you were saying I don't feel like I get to know her any more through this music than I did through Revival like I I get what you mean about it feeling a little bit stuck yeah so we've taken quite a journey here through the last 11 years (laughs) we went in as they say like looking back I mean we've touched on a lot of this stuff like how does her career seem to you in the context of the other girls from her Disney era? Like, where does she Weird. stand versus Demi versus Miley? Weird, but pound for pound, like, better off, I think. Right. Like, personal travails, sure, but, like, not a ton of misses, especially, like, post-Hollywood records. More modest of ambition, like, smaller in most ways, but maybe more effective i don't know i think like if you lay out and when you include her acting and her production and her you know remember when like last year she spoke out against like misinformation like on on social media like you know like the way she uses her platform she's a good person She's a yeah, good like person. I don't know her, but I have a soft spot yeah. for her, and I think Me like too. you know my, she has she's been through a lot, but she hasn't been through the ringer in the way that Demi and Miley have. Uh, maybe that that's arguable, but not in terms of conventional pop wisdom. Like your average person doesn't have as many polarized feelings about selena as they do about miley you know and i think she's better off for that i don't think she could have survived the sort of scrutiny that miley got her scrutiny was of a different sort but i don't know i think like it's a weirdly well-rounded career for how inconsistent it is musically 
I'll say I'm the most interested in hearing her future music of any of the three of them. Like, I'd be the most intrigued to hear, especially if she continues to go in weirder, more idiosyncratic directions. She's set herself up for the most intriguing musical choices. Like, Demi's music doesn't interest me in the slightest. Like, I don't find their music interesting. And Miley seems like she's in a decent place. But again, like, Miley's never found, like, a musical lane, aside from just, like, the utter spectacle of bangers that's, like, really worked. So, like, for someone that's the least musical of the bunch she's the most intriguing to me musically moving forward of of all three of them like miley i can see traipsing off into doing covers at the grand old opry right it seems like maybe selena is still at the beginning of something weird yes like this far into her career it feels like she's still at the beginning of her sound whereas miley has burned through so many sounds at this point and eras and personas and you know, like she'll always have that voice, but like Miley, this moment is most famous for her cover songs. You know, like yes. that's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like I, I just feel like Selena is like inching towards artistry in an interesting way. If I show you all my demons and we dive into the deep, and would we crash and burn like every time before? I would tell you all my secrets, wrap your arms around my weakness if the only I'll stay vulnerable. All right, so let's talk about the Pantheon here. Now, I think that this will lay my cards on the table that Selena Gomez is the emblematic tier for like kind of working class pop star because for every reason we've talked about here, it's like she's consistently famous. She's consistently like making Mm -hmm. minor hit records for the most part, but like she's never had a moment in popular culture where like she has taken over the conversation where she has been the central focus (laughs) of the popular music debate. Not even close. Not even close. And yet she's always kind of just there. And as I said, she's always kind of just there Touring 20,000 person arenas, like, you know, having like a big pop career that yet at the same time, like feels tangential. Do you disagree with that assessment? I mean, if like strictly as a pop star, she is tier four working class pop star. I think you're right. The I mean, you made these categories. So, yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I but like, I think there needs to be a three C. You know, like you have a you have a three A, a three B, but I think there needs to be a three C, which is like extremely famous people who also sometimes make music. (laughs) I I get what you're saying about that, but like to me, it's like we're talking about the pop music canon like we're talking about of course like if this was just about celebrity it's like it would be something different i mean celebrity is part of it so i get what you're saying and i want to like take that into account and think about it but at the same time i'm like like, i I feel like for the most part we're talking about these people's like standing within the music world right i feel like that doesn't account for a selena gomez like she's such a weird case right like even when i'm saying like maybe there should be a 3c like i'm struggling to come up with another person who fits properly into that maybe like modern day kesha i don't know joe kesha's like because kesha i think selena's more famous than kesha is that kesha was like is so associated with her hits from 2010 to 2013 or whatever you know what i mean like 
She's an emblem she, of that era. Right. But she feels now she feels more famous as Kesha than she does for her music, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. but that's but you're right. That's not perfect either. I'm just I'm trying to think of. Another... What about Demi? Like, how does Demi fit into this for you? <sighs> Doesn't really. Like, mm. I just, I, Demi, What about I don't... Miley? What about Miley? Miley's, like, maybe someone to talk about because Miley is a superstar who has had actually very little actual hit music. Like... That's true. Miley's superstardom, like, far eclipses her actual track record of, like, making hit music, you know? I mean, maybe Miley is the comp and, like, one of the only. And it's funny that they walked such similar paths so differently. But you're right that they may have landed in the same place, which is, like, (laughs) incapable of making, like, a song (laughs) that moves the culture at all. But they're superstars. Like... I don't know. Like, I think I, but but I, but wait. I just want to say one thing. Distinction. Yeah, it's, it's big really distinction funny. here is that Miley is still known through her flops as like a musician first and foremost. Like when you think Miley, you think voice singing. You know, like it's it's is she, yeah. you still think of her as like a musician. Like Selena, yes. when you think of her, you think of her as a celebrity who like sometimes yeah. makes music. I think that's right, and I think as far as the pop pantheon goes that really hurts her grade it hurts her tier that she she's not a musician like she is <laughs> but she but it's like you know she's currently in a big streaming show and has a cooking show on hbo yeah. max like that to me is like the that's selena selena gomez is selena and chef more than it is rare you know like she's a celebrity i also think like you know she's obsessed with Jennifer Aniston? No, I don't know about this. Selena Gomez has a deep, long-time obsession, childhood, you know, obviously, like, probably grew up watching Friends as, like, a small mm-hmm. child with her with her mother in, like, their apartment that they shared on, like, the, you know, near the Disney lot. Selena Gomez, yes, is obsessed with, not Madonna, Jennifer Aniston. You know, like... That makes a it, lot of sense, actually. Because they're Because Selena Gomez, like, on Selena and Chef, like, she is an extremely winning person, personality. Like, so charismatic. You just want to hang so out So charismatic. With her. So authentic seeming, like so just like herself, grounded, not trying to be anything that she's not. Like I love her normie friends on that show. I'm like, this is so funny. Like you are like this huge pop star and you're like hanging out with your like friend who like does what exactly? Like what do you guys talk about? Like what? And then like Taylor Swift is also texting you. Like what? Obviously even that is is a brand extension, right? And is like a pose and whatever, because once you're a child star, like you can never outrun the fact that everything you're doing is like gaming an audience in some way but like yeah she pulls it off i think she is ill-suited to the pop pantheon conversation because she's just <laughs> not not primarily a pop singer uh even if it's like the i don't know the first like, thing on her re- it would yeah, still be the first right. thing on it her would, resume probably it would, which is which is crazy, like if you if I she think. gets introduced at an award show they will always say pop star selena gomez first that's the first thing they're gonna say about her right pop star and actress or whatever yes. they'll say the old thing but pop star is coming first but much more likely to win an oscar or an emmy than to win a grip i think like her path is more Reese Witherspoon, you know, than it is Taylor Swift. Like, I think she could have a production company that kills it. I think, like, she could be a serious actress. I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, yeah, I'm I, I very see that. interested to know what the next 
decade of Selena Gomez looks like, but I don't think it's like burning up the Billboard charts. I just don't. So we agree, though, like in the context of the population, she's tier four. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So last question I always ask before we go out. Is there an underrated Selena song, maybe something we haven't spoken about that we could send the podcast out on? The Zed song, right? Selena Gomez and Zed. We didn't yes. we didn't talk about that. Another the celebrity proto, relationship. Yes. The proto Selena and Kaigo song is the Selena and Zed song I want you to know from mm-hmm. 2015. Yep. Alright, so let's go out on I Want You to Know. Joe Coscarelli, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was really fun. Uh, I didn't know that I had so many opinions about Selena Gomez. <laughs> I knew you would. I knew you would. That's why I had to push you into this one. I want you to know that it's a time. You and me lead the same life. I want you to know that I'm all yours. You and me run the same course. All right. So that's a wrap on Pop Pantheon. Selena Gomez, the judgment is rendered. She is a tier four working class pop star. Although one that I think was a very fun subject to like get into. So just goes to show just because you're not high in the Pantheon doesn't mean you're not a fascinating and intriguing and worthwhile subject for this podcast and for pop culture writ large. I want to say thank you so, so much to the magnificent Joe Coscarelli for hanging with me and having this discussion. If you have more to say, if you want to get into the conversation with us, come join the Discord tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, January 6th. Links are in the bio. I'll put them on social as well. Send any questions to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. I'll answer on a future mini-sode. Like, rate, subscribe on Apple, on Spotify. Please give us a rating. Give us a review. I love every single one of them. Follow me on social at DJLOUIEXIV. Follow the podcast at Pop Pantheon Pod. And until next time, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. Oh, tell me lies, tell me lies. I want you to know.